The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's good to see everyone. This morning, what I'd like to talk about is being a spiritual warrior. This topic came up for me um, a few weeks ago. I was feeling pretty uh, sad, down about all the events in the world. And my... (laughs) Uh, tendency is to sort of give up, you know, just become passive. Okay, okay, anything, but please stop the fighting. And I was in that mode. I was sort of feeling that way. And in a couple different ways, the word warrior came to my attention. And I thought, Hmm, (laughs) must be something here for me to look at. So I did. And so some of that is what I would like to share with you this morning, and I'd like for you to share also. What does it mean to be a spiritual warrior? First of all, what does it mean to be a warrior? What do you think of when you hear warrior? Just a couple of you say. Fighting. Strength. Strength. What else? Free will. So wonderful. You have uh, uh, spoken a very nice combination of what it means to be a warrior. I actually went to the dictionary, Webster's, and um, two editions that I have, and they both referred to fighting and military and um, weapons and that kind of thing. And a couple of people have suggested to me they don't like that term. They don't like the term warrior because of those connotations. But you have also included some of the qualities that I think are important for a spiritual warrior as well. Bravery, courage, strength, etc. And so... Being a spiritual warrior, of course, has nothing to do with killing or fighting or weaponry, but it does have to do with strength and courage and determination. So this from Pema Chodron. Since you are wholeheartedly committed to the warrior's journey, it pricks you. It pokes you. It's like someone laughing in your ear, challenging you to figure out what to do when you don't know what to do. It humbles you. It opens your heart. 
And it's true, isn't it? When we, when we fully commit to something, to the spiritual path, life has a way of supporting that by saying, okay, how about here? <laughs> okay, how about here? And what about this? And so we do get the opportunity, don't we, over and over to practice um, our determination, to practice the qualities that we develop as a spiritual warrior. It's not an easy path. You've probably heard that uh, coming to IMC. It's not an easy path to choose the Buddhist path. It's not an easy path to choose a spiritual path. There are many challenges, many pitfalls, many difficulties along the way. In Buddhism, we talk about the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion, which are very broad categories for all the things in life that can trip us up, all the things that we confront And how do we work with them? How do we deal with all these things? Sometimes it's pretty challenging. And sometimes we feel like we're not dealing very well. But when we confront these issues, as Pema Chodron suggests, it can be humbling and it can break open the heart. And when the heart breaks open, compassion comes forth. So another very important quality of the spiritual warrior is compassion. So I have come to see the warrior path as um, in, in two ways. And the first is that as spiritual warriors, the most important task is to confront ourselves, to confront those forces within us that challenge us, that want to pull us away from doing what we have committed ourselves to do. And again, the broad categories of greed, hatred, and delusion. But they may show up as fear, as um, Uh, egotism, as anger, as um, any number of of, uh, forces that want to pull us away. And so the spiritual warrior relentlessly turns inward and challenges him or herself to confront those forces within us and transcend them or purify them. Rather than seeing the enemy out there and wanting to fight out there, we turn inward not to fight, but to challenge ourselves to purify ourselves. And of course, that's no small challenge. It reminds me of the true meaning of the word jihad, which has gotten co-opted <laughs> and, and, you know, really used very negatively, very um, pejoratively. 
But it's my understanding that originally the word jihad was an interior battle. It was about just what I'm saying, confronting those things within ourselves. The extremists have, as I said, co-opted it and use it uh, to support fighting others, the non-believers or whatever. But from my Muslim friends, that's not what the true meaning in the Quran is. It is about turning within and purifying ourselves. Then the second uh, way I view a spiritual warrior is that strength and determination and uh, wisdom and uh, courage that we bring to any situation and compassion. We can't leave out the compassion. So when I was looking at myself, that was what I felt was missing. There was this passiveness or this giving up, but there wasn't that strength, that determination. And that's, that can be an elusive thing. It can be... Uh, well, each of us, I think, has to know in our own hearts where are we coming from. So what I do outwardly might not change that much, but I know there's a difference within. That at this point, I don't feel so much like I'm just giving up, but rather um, being courageous, being strong, speaking my truth but not being aggressive or not being uh, mean-spirited or whatever. So there's a story you've probably heard, I think actually I've read it in this group a while back from Gill's book called The Deer and the Tiger. Anybody remember that? Yeah. <laughs> Indulge me again. <laughs> because I think um I think this story speaks to both the um the ability or the time when it might be appropriate to be passive and when it's appropriate to be fierce, to be the tiger. So there once was a monk who was known for his relaxed and trusting nature. No matter what was happening, the monk would smile. If circumstances were challenging, he would say, if we can accept how things are and keep a positive attitude, everything we need will unfold on its own. Once when the monk was on a month-long retreat in a hermitage deep in the forest, he witnessed a remarkable interaction between a deer and a tiger. The deer, injured, came stumbling into the clearing in front of the hermitage. Sometime later, a tiger wandered into the clearing and saw the wounded deer. The monk held his breath. 
convinced that the tiger would surely kill and eat the deer. The deer, too, was clearly worried. But as it could no longer walk, the deer accepted its fate, lying very still in the grass. So for me, there's that. At that point, it was appropriate for the deer to surrender, to accept his fate and just lie still. To the monk's surprise, the tiger spent the next few days standing guard over the deer until the deer was well enough to wander off again on its own. So it would seem in that particular instance, that was the appropriate thing, to just be very still. And somehow that touched the tiger, and the tiger not only left him alone, but stood guard, so no other animal would bother him either. The monk was elated at this sight as it seemed to validate his idea that if we could only accept whatever happens fully enough, the boundless goodness of the universe would take care of us. A few days later, lightning struck a neighboring hermitage only a hundred feet away. At first, the roof smoldered and smoked. The monk accepted this. The roof then caught on fire. The monk accepted this. Then the rest of the hut started burning. The monk accepted this too. Soon the entire hermitage was gone, and the nun who lived there was slightly injured from attempting to battle the flames. When the abbess came to investigate the fire, she asked the monk why he didn't go to help put out the fire. In reply, the monk told the story of the tiger and the deer and how it had taught him the importance of surrendering and accepting things in the way the deer had done. You fool, said the abbess. Certainly there are times when you should be like the deer. But if you are to be a spiritually mature person, you should also know when to be like the tiger. With that, the abbess sent the monk away. Don't come back until you know how to be a tiger. Only when you accept this part of yourself can you understand what it means to accept how things are. (laughs) So what do you think? It's so easy for all of us, isn't it, to, uh, I can imagine for myself, to get really caught by, yes, accepting things just as they are, yes, with equanimity, with, you know, right? Yes, yes, the hermitage is burning. (laughs) We take a very important understanding and carry it a bit too far. And so the ability to know when, when to be like the deer, when to surrender to what is, and when to use our strength and our courage and whatever to to do what needs to be done. Sort of like it reminds me of the serenity prayer, right? God grant me the courage to accept the things that I cannot change, 
the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. So I'm troubled by the abbots rebuking the monk as a fool <laughs> in that story. <laughs> Well, it seems like, it just seems like that's, well, if if someone had rebuked me like that, I'd been very unlikely to move forward in the course that was being suggested. Mm -hmm. I would have probably, you know, wanted to strike out at the abbot. Um, Don't call me a fool. Um... I'm, I'm just, I'm wondering why the story didn't go more in terms of uh, some compassion and encouragement for the way the monk should have, should be more like a tiger under appropriate circumstances, under the right circumstances. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, one thing we might presume is that the abbess knew the monk well enough to know how to respond. And while for you that might not have been appropriate, um, for somebody else it might be. And that's part, I think, of the fierceness of a spiritual warrior, knowing when the right response might be, you fool, and when that wouldn't be appropriate. I think I just answered my own question. Because the story is allegorical, clearly. So it's telling us, in effect, not to be foolish Mm. in the way that we uh, accept what is Mm -hmm. and ignore what we might do to change what is or what appears to be. Yeah, good. Uh, before you, yes, this is on. Okay, before you started telling the story of the deer and the tiger, I was bothered by the fact that when all these people were listing qualities of a warrior, no one listed wisdom, Mm -hmm. uh, which I feel is you know a a key quality of uh, of being a warrior. There's times when ferocity is called for, but it has to be applied in a way that uh will truly fruitfully achieve uh, a goal uh for everyone and uh if you it's misdirected ferocity that is in many ways the uh cause of much suffering in the world uh so yes you're right wisdom is as well as inappropriate levels of ferocity mm-hmm. Uh, well, I was uh, wait waiting. I guess I don't know. <laughs> I guess I thought of it at the point where it stopped. It took a while. I'm laughing at your response because the first time I heard this story from Gil, I didn't mind if I identified with the monk being called a fool, but I learned that if I don't do it right, I'm sent away from the monastery. So if I don't do it right here, I'm sent away from IMC. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh. Now, I didn't believe that, and I knew that was not the point of the story. Uh, 
But that was my first strong reaction. Isn't, isn't that interesting? So just in those two reactions, um, different, but they come from what's in here, from our experience or what has been true for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, see. I like the fluidity of the identities, the appropriateness of either identifying with the deer or identifying with the tiger. And you know, you, you could flow from one identity to the other and back depending on what's, what's um, appropriate. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important part of wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think maybe there's some gender issues going on between the men and the women back <laughs> in the day. <laughs> Well, remember, these are Gill's stories. <laughs> and, and it's very purposeful that it's an abbess. <laughs> but the tiger wasn't fierce. The tiger was a protector. Yes, yes. And that's... Um, one, one of the definitions, uh, the other way that this warrior attitude came to me was in this book, 365 Tao. It's um, a collection of daily readings from the Taoist tradition. And um, uh, this one day, it talked about being a warrior and... It said, a warrior is a protector of ideals, principles, and honor. A warrior is noble and heroic. Um, that stood out to me, protector, and yet we have to be very careful because a lot of what's going on in the world is about people protecting their ideals and beliefs and honor and etc. So I I find it a little bit troubling in in that respect, um, and very much appreciate the Buddhist perspective that um, that we hold these things lightly, and that ultimately we have to let go of our attachment to ideals, beliefs honor, <laughs> anything like that. But that sense of protection, that the warrior is a protector, as, as the tiger was. Anything else? So, um, a little more from this book. Can you be both martial and spiritual? Can you overcome your ultimate opponent? Interesting. Who's the ultimate opponent? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But that, that question of being both martial and spiritual, being compassionate and caring and giving and at the same time being able to be firm. Um, 
makes me think of tough love with, uh, well, it can be with children or it can be with anybody. But again, with wisdom, recognizing that what is loving, what is truly loving, can sometimes be very fierce. It's not always soft and gentle and love and light. We'd like it to be. And sometimes we don't recognize true love because it's not wrapped in pink and softness. Um, It can be quite fierce. It can be quite strong. And so that balance, the balance of the compassion and the softness, and the warrior-type stance. So in, in this particular reading, it talks about how a warrior never succumbs or surrenders, is it, to his opponent. Uh, yeah, I, I don't see it, but... Um, never gives in, I think that's how it says, to his opponent. But rather, sidesteps. So it's not a caving, not a giving in, not a relinquishing our power. But like with Aikido, where you take the energy and sidestep it. And this, this, I think, for me, this is often key. How do I not just give up, but sidestep the issue so there's not a direct confrontation? I found as I, um, as I was raising my daughter that that came up a lot, that there were many times where it was important to sidestep an issue. If I confronted it directly, it was going to be a big fight. (laughs) And um, neither of us was going to win. And so what I tried to do, hopefully successfully, I'm not always sure, but (laughs) was not confront it directly, but sort of take that energy and turn it a bit so that neither one of us lost face, neither one of us was wrong, and neither one of us won, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I had a situation with my daughter's school, and um, a lot of times I can be very reactionary. And in the schools now, they're making a lot of changes with math and how they're going to test the students. So the teacher sent out a memo saying that if kids wanted to go to a certain math class the next year, they'd have to independently study math for like a month and do all these lessons and take tests. And that was just really odd because they never asked the students to do that. So a lot of people were really mad, including myself. And my daughter was crying. And I want to be in this math next year like my brother was. And and I was just like, oh, my gosh. And um, so my first reaction was like, I'm emailing the principal and the teacher and everything. But I didn't do anything. I talked to other parents, and everybody was upset. And then um, it ended up, you know, less than a week later, they um, took the letter back and said, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have sent it out. Because it was a real odd thing in a public school to ask the students to teach themselves 
a lot of lessons, and it's it's part of um, just because they're changing the math curriculum in the state, and so the schools have to adjust to that. And it's certain grades it's affecting more than others. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it made me feel good that my first response was like, I'm gonna, you know, da da da. But then I thought, no, I'm not gonna do anything because I know everybody else is complaining, and something's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't happen in the way that I thought was the correct way, then I was gonna send my calmer email five days later. But I was mm-hmm. happy that I waited. Um, and that I didn't follow my first reaction to be reactionary to the letter. So, but yes. it's really hard because your first reaction, especially you get so mama bearish, like, oh my God, my kid's crying and she's all upset. And so it's really hard to hold back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you did that consciously and with wisdom. So it wasn't a giving up. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. We can't it, yeah was, and I was keeping tabs on it, and I knew something was going to happen, or I could yeah. have written the email but not sent it. Mm-hmm. But I knew they mm-hmm. couldn't just send that information out because I and the parent community was pretty upset about it. So I knew something was going to happen, and I was just kind of waiting to see. And we actually did show the letter to a friend who's on the school board, and he's like, "Okay, yeah, they can't do this." Blah blah blah. So I knew something was going to happen, mm-hmm. but I didn't know what. But I just didn't want to add fuel to the fire. Right. But it's really hard to do it when you're in the moment. (laughs) It can be. Yeah, really hard. Yeah. When the mama bear instinct is (laughs) very strong. Yeah. And that mama bear instinct, that's part of of being a warrior, isn't it? That's part of being a tiger. That's very important. And knowing when to use it and when to wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. Anything else? We're talking about being a spiritual warrior, Gloria. <laughs> so... Um, In so much of what I read, the idea of the spiritual warrior is about the willingness, the ability to look within, to look within ourselves and confront what needs to be confronted rather than um, projecting it outward and then wanting to fight or create enemies outwardly. So another piece by Pema Chodron talks about being a bodhisattva. She uses bodhisattva uh, synonymously with warriors. Not who kill, but warriors of non-aggression who hear the cries of the world, like Kuan Yin or um, Avalokiteshvara. The warrior hears the cries of the world and is willing to train in the middle of the fire. To train ourselves. We enter challenging situations in order to alleviate suffering. So the warrior does not back away from challenging or difficult situations, but with courage enters them. Um, and their willingness to cut through personal reactivity and self-deception. 
She mentions people like Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King, who recognize that the greatest harm comes from our own aggressive minds. So we learn to relate to ourselves and our world as warriors. We train in awakening our courage and love. The emphasis, again, being on the warrior uh, position within. What is it that we need to look at to confront? And sometimes the best way to see that is to see what pushes our button out here. Very often, what pushes our button in the world is what is within us, is what we need to look at, what we need to confront within ourselves. Now, as we do that, it doesn't mean then we ignore what's out there. Because very often, there is much to confront out there. But if we have done our own work first, then we're going to deal with what's out there in a very different way, with wisdom, with compassion, with understanding. Rather than bringing our own aggression to whatever the situation is and creating more disharmony, more um, anger and fear and upset. So we were talking last night in my group in Morgan Hill. Somebody was quite upset about, I mean, there's any number of things to be upset about, right? But last night it happened to be the beheading of the journalist. And, um, and this woman was saying, but I want to express my anger. I'm outraged that this should happen. And I think I should express my anger. This is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. And we can all relate to that, right? But you can hear in my voice, and I'm, I'm repeating from her, the, the anger and the aggression. And that kind of approach is not going to get us what we really want, is it? That's going to get a response in the same tone, with the same um, anger and aggression. So I think that presents a challenge to us. How do we be a warrior without that um, uh, harshness and how do we confront what we believe to be at the least unskillful <laughs> um, not a way we want to live without creating more aggression more anger and more disharmony and that's, I think that's a constant challenge for us. One of the things that I find so important is remembering to see the whole picture and to get as much information, as much 
understanding as possible. Because we often have a slice, just a piece of the total picture. What we get from the media, um, what we hear in sound bites, doesn't often do justice to the whole situation. So while we can be outraged at such an action, it behooves us to try to understand the entire situation. And what comes to my mind is the story that Thich Nhat Hanh tells about um, when, during the Vietnam War, when he was still in Vietnam, and a young Vietnamese soldier came to him, uh, tearful, and really upset because an American soldier had spit on him. And Thich Nhat Hanh consoled him, you know, and talked to him, comforted him. And then he said, can you imagine if you were born in the United States and you were raised believing that we are gooks or whatever all the words were back then for, um, for Vietnamese, you might do the same thing. And I think that's so powerful. He's not excusing it. He's not forgiving it. And he consoled the soldier first. But then he suggested, put yourself in that American soldier's shoes and see, to understand, not to excuse, but to understand how someone could do that. That's a big task, I think. That's a big challenge. And yet, it seems to me it's what our world needs so much right now, for us to understand the other perspective. That doesn't mean condone it, excuse it, um, let it be all right, but to understand where someone else might be coming from. And it seems to me it's only as we do that that we have half a chance of working with that other person or that other group. Only when we have some understanding of where they're coming from, what's going on for them, what does this mean to them, that we have any chance of working together. And it seems to me that's a warrior stance. That's a warrior position. Sometimes it's very easy to just, you know, be angry and um, shoot off our mouths or our rockets or whatever. And it takes much more courage, much more effort, much more wisdom to try to understand the situation to try to understand what, what is going on. Imagine, imagine if we could do this in Gaza right now, if both sides could stop long enough to understand where the other side is coming from. 
And it, again, it's so important. That doesn't mean to say that it excuses some behavior or it makes some behavior right or okay, but just to understand. In so many ways, both sides are wanting the same thing. But they end up fighting each other instead of working towards some workable solution. So, further thoughts? I was just remembering um, how I first came to IMC. Um, I, it was around the time of the poly class case many years ago. And um, this young girl who had gotten kidnapped from her home, and then there was an attempted rape and the murder of her. and. I started coming to IMC, I think the first night I came was when they had just found her body. And um, I found myself being really depressed over this case because I had also worked as a pediatrics ICU nurse and had taken care of a four-year-old child who had gotten kidnapped beaten up, raped, and then thrown naked out of a moving car and left in an industrial parking lot over in East Menlo Park or East Palo Alto, I forget which one. And she had been found in the morning hovering behind some bushes crying. And so I was, I remember that night, Gil just basically opened up the whole group for discussion of people's feelings about the case. And I can remember one woman saying, well, I'm very, very angry. And Gil had said something to the extent, um, experience your anger, it's real, but also recognize that this man is suffering also who did this, because imagine how cut off from your own heart you must be to be able to commit something like that. And um, having been raised in a very kind of fundamentalist, right-wrong um, Christian background, um, it created a crack in my thinking that allowed me to start exploring something different. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful to have found a different philosophy and a different way of looking at the world. And that's not to say that I don't constantly fall <laughs> into that trap. Yeah. But it's very nice to know that there's a place that I can come and start exploring and trying to increase the size of the window through which I view the world. Yeah, great, thank you. And without denying or making ourselves wrong for the anger. That's what's so valuable. Experience your anger, that's real. 
We're not wrong for feeling the anger or the outrage. And we can understand the whole picture and not act, react out of that anger. Yeah. Hi. Oops. Hello? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, a good illustration of what you were saying earlier is after 9-11, there were those um, concerts. I don't know if you remember the concerts mm-hmm. in New York. And all the celebrities were getting up and saying, you know, singing songs and everything. And Richard Gere got up and said exactly that. What are they thinking? What is going on in their heads? Let's evaluate all of this. And he got booed off the stage. And you talk about a crack in your thinking. I thought, oh my, why is he getting booed off the stage? This is wonderful to be able to even express it. This is American to be able to express this. And I remember thinking that was the, my crack. It's mm. like I definitely have to explore this. So it was very interesting. Huh. I just wanted to share. Yeah, thank you for that. I didn't, I didn't know that. Isn't that something, to get booed off the stage because you encourage people to understand the entire situation, to understand the opponent? The mm-hmm. Jonathan? I remember the Dixie Chicks getting booed off stages for their challenging of the invasion of Iraq. Um, and they're from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so it points to what we were saying earlier doesn't it that that the spiritual path can be very challenging in in buddhist practice we talk about sometimes it's like swimming upstream where what what might seem very rational to us and an important part of the practice can actually go against the stream of the culture. And so uh, it requires of us <laughs> perseverance and courage and um, strength and being willing to stay the course no matter no matter what people might say or no matter what happens. You know, it can be so easy, especially in a group, to veer from our, our principles, uh, what we hold most dear, because of the pressure of the culture around us. And that could be, you know, a small culture or the larger culture. And I find that a challenge when I'm in the midst of, you know, uh, a situation where my idea is not the prevailing one, when I'm in Richard Gere's (laughs) position, to remain true, to remain steadfast, not aggressive, but just remain steadfast. And that doesn't necessarily mean preaching. You know, it's not always appropriate to, at the moment, um, give my opinion. But 
within myself, staying true to that, and maybe just being quiet, just not being a part of the predominant um, emotion or what's going on. That can be quite challenging. There's quite a draw to go along with what's being expressed. And it takes sometimes enormous courage and compassion to just stay true to what we know is the path we want to stay on. Anybody have an example of where your warrior-ness has been challenged? And how do you meet it? It's not really a big example, but I also have a 15-year-old boy, and um, the boys like to play violent video games. And so my son plays M-rated games, but we don't buy them for him, and he doesn't buy them, but his friends give them to him, or they bring them. And he's like, well, why do you let me play them or at my friend's house? And then I say kind of as a joke, well, because then you wouldn't have any friends. Because, I, mean, I mean, I'm sure there's some boys out there who don't, but I think it's probably a minority. But, you know, and he gets excited, like Grand Theft Auto will come out with a new game, and I've told him about some of the things I've read about the content of the game. And I said, honey, that game would never be okay for you. I wouldn't think it's okay when you're 25 or 30. Why would I think it's okay to play a simulated game about shooting people? You know, I, I said, I would never think it's okay. So I think he knows how we feel. But then I also let him play it, and he has friends come over, and they play it. And um, But it's really hard because, like, I joke around that I feel like I'm Amish because I feel like it's so counterculture. And um, when he was in middle school, he'd say, oh, well, everybody in middle school plays T-rated games. I said, well, does that mean you're 13? And then M is 18. He's like, oh, no, everybody plays M in high school, which it is kind of true. And so it's just kind of hard because a, a lot of the kids or some of the families have their ki- let their kids do things earlier, like going to see certain kinds of movies and things. And so it's hard because if you don't want your child to do that, it's really it can be challenging because um, a lot of other families are okay with it, but I haven't been okay with it. That's really hard. Sidestepping. Yeah, well, it's really, really difficult. I mean, they, and they, and luckily he has this other hobby that's not video game related, but for the boys, I mean, they, they are so drawn to it. I mean, it is really, they love it. They, and they really, really love it and are very interested in it, and it's very compelling for them. Maybe the most important thing is that you talk to him about it. Yeah. He knows how you feel. Yeah. And I think he also gets it that why would we say it's okay, but mm-hmm. I think it's... And then it's... I mean, I, I'm glad that we have freedom of speech, but it also frustrates me that we... that companies make those games, and then we get all upset when something happens at a company or a school, yet we have lots of children and men and probably some women playing these games. So I think it's really contradictory. You know, so. 
I heard, um, maybe apropos of this, I heard a, a former city councilman from Sunnyvale on Sunday afternoon describe how uh, Sunnyvale was able to pass the restrictions on guns uh, and it passed by nearly 70% of the voters and no one ever thought it was going to pass at all but when it got on the ballot. So part of what he said was that um, um, that we have that if we have a, a cause we have to start in a small way and locally in in at least in this kind of case and it won't be legislating something at the national level. It won't be legislating an end to video games that are violent or whatever other objectionable versions or things there are. I'm not very well versed in video games, having no longer having teenagers around. Um, but uh, anyhow, I thought that was an important thought about how to go about making change. Yes, and I think that's exactly why our practice is so important. That before larger changes can take place, they must take place within our own hearts. And when we do that, when we change, then we bring a different attitude, a different energy to whatever we do. And... Um, was it Margaret Mead that said, never, never doubt the effectiveness of a small group of people to change things? In fact, that's the only way it's ever happened. That's the only way they changed. Gloria? Um, my... Youngest sister has been dating a man for many years. She was widowed um, fairly young, raising three children by herself. And this man came and helped her out a lot. And they will actually be getting married in December. But he's very right-wing and very pro-gun and so forth. And um, has been preaching to her and her kids all along about this. And when I visited a couple summers ago, um, quite, I was sitting there at the table with him and quite unexpectedly he, ha he had like a whole jar of spent bullet casings and he was saying, now Obama wants to ban this bullet versus that bullet. And, you know, it was like he, I found myself... Um, absolutely enraged and I said excuse me as an ICU nurse I know exactly what bullets can do I have seen children's bodies torn up by these bullets and I would be perfectly happy to live in a country where guns were totally banned you know we're not the most wonderful country in the world and there are many places in the world where people live much safer and he um, and, but I was, I had, I was totally out of control. I was screaming. One of my younger nephews had run upstairs and she was going, oh my God, is Gloria going to hit Gary? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but 
I I had also come into her home a couple years prior when her son had come back from the Air Force and I was sitting there at the kitchen table and he had his rifle out on the table. He had been cleaning it and was kind of almost like, see, I'm grown up, I'm a man, I have my gun. <laughs> and so I... Um, found it was very important for me to speak out. I'm not sure it was the most, uh, it probably was not the most effective way, but I felt it was really important to bring into this household another discussion and to know what it's like to sit around looking at x-rays of people's bodies with that have been hit by these bullets that fragment and create enormous damage once they hit the body. And um, and that was probably very helpful that you could come from that perspective. Right. Um, a, a true life experience rather than just a moralistic right. uh, position. Yeah. Yeah, so who knows? Sometimes, sometimes... A, an unplanned, uh, <laughs> a spontaneous reaction, like like the abbess yelling, you fool, <laughs> in a way that was your version of, you fool. You know, it might not be what we sit around here and talk about is <laughs> the most effective way, but it might work. <laughs> yeah, one more thing, John, and then we better stop. Well, I hope I'm not turning this into a political discussion, but I, I'm happy that three out of my five friends who do own guns are very opposed to the NRA and very much want more gun control. And one of them in particular was very annoyed that the NRA would not allow her to revoke her lifetime membership. She bought a lifetime membership in 1970 and in early 2000 she was so upset she wrote to them and said, please revoke my membership in your organization. They said, you can't. You bought a lifetime <laughs> membership. You're, you're, you're stuck with us. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, but while I never want, while I never want to own a gun, I have no desire to own a gun. I'm sure I never will. Knowing gun gun owners who are actually on the same side think there needs to be much better, much stricter restrictions. It gives me a certain sense of hope. <laughs> so, thank you. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so thank you all, and um, may you may you carry the idea of the spiritual warrior within you, and um, may we all be spiritual warriors.